Station 2, San Jose Avenue. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to Total SF in Exile, and welcome Kelly Hartlob. Thank you. Nice to be here in my home. In your home, in your living room. Uh, you are my wife. <laughs> I am your current wife. Yes, uh, forever wife. Heather Knight is off for a little bit. Ripley. There's the dog. Ripley. She does this every podcast. Did you know that? You listen. <laughs> yeah, I, I've actually, I've heard it both in person. And then again, when I'm walking Ripley, I hear Ripley barking on your podcast. It's very meta. It's very meta. There's a lot going on right now um, in our living room. Um, I'm starting a month-long tribute to independent bookstores and comic book shops. You are a high school librarian, and I'm going to be interviewing local authors. As a high school librarian, what's your favorite local bookstore, and what do independent bookstores mean to you? Oh, what a great question. Uh, my my particular bookstore is Books, Inc. of Alameda. All independent bookstores are wonderful. Uh, what it means to me is a place where I can roam and feel a lot like I do when I'm in a library, except I can purchase the book and bring it home and mark it up and dog ear it and uh, and contribute to a local business and to authors at the same time and just feel good about it all around. Okay, well, that's what I want to talk about. And um, next several episodes, I'm going to be inviting authors on. Our first guest is Judd Winnick author of the graphic novel series Hilo. Um, I'm reading it. Our son's reading it. It's very funny. It's very fun. It has a lot of um, kind of, it's got those little kind of Judy Bloom, Raina Telgemeier things to it too, where kids can kind of feel empowered when they're reading it. It's, it's a great series. And he was a cast member of maybe the most memorable season of reality TV ever, the real world season three uh, we were not together. This was 26 years ago. We knew each other. Do you remember it? I'm old enough to remember the real world. And actually, when I think of the real world, I, I think of real world SF, and Jug, Judd Winnick weighs heavily in that. At the time, there was a lot of drama on the show. Everybody's talking about Puck and you know whatever fights were going on in the house. But I think really the enduring thing is Pedro Zamora and his fight with AIDS. Right, and that was really groundbreaking because that was there was still so much uh, stigma around HIV/AIDS at that time, and and um, and having this you know this face and this very charming person who people could see and get to know. And then find out that he was HIV positive, I think, was a really important thing uh, for viewers and, and for the country. So Judd stayed in San Francisco with his wife, Pam Ling, who's a doctor at UCSF. They met on The Real World. And after Pedro Zamora died, it was right after the last episode, um, they went around and did a lot of AIDS education. And Judd wrote a book called Pedro and Me. It's um, Pedro Zamora's story, and it's an AIDS education book that still is in circulation. It's still in print, um, still being taught at schools. 20th anniversary is in September, and we talked a lot about that. Um, we also talk about our favorite Bay Area comic book shops, um, which you're not a comic book person, but you accept me. For I my... support your supporting of comic book shops. And I think we need to support them more than ever. So we talk a lot about that. So final question, what do you think of this whole Total SF thing? <laughs> um, Ripley's chiming in. Ripley actually should be the biggest fan. Um, I, I I love all this total SF uh, work that you and Heather do. I love how you guys are discovering so many different aspects of the city. Uh, the city gets a really bad rap right now, and um, it's nice for you all to remind us about how many things you know are, are there that we can all still enjoy. And I feel really lucky to live in the Bay Area, and I, um, I'm a firm supporter of total SF. I think you're um, remarkably tolerant, um, <laughs> considering... <laughs> Heather and I, uh, Heather and I, I scheduled a podcast <laughs> on your birthday once, and we went through with it. You you spent your birthday watching me do a Total SF I podcast. Mean, it was like a Wednesday. What else would you do on your birthday? You know, that it, it ended up being really fun, and I'm a big fan of Heather Knight, so I was happy to, to spend some time with Heather and, of course, with you. 
All right. Well, you are the coolest. Um, also, for turning the living room into a podcasting studio, we are in our living room um, <laughs> right at the point where we're spending pretty much every waking hour at home. Um, there's like mics and tables and all kinds of stuff in our yeah, living room. Yeah, we've gotten through like like 2,700 weeks of pandemic and we still <laughs> like each other. So yeah, I think, I think we're going to be okay. Well, thanks for doing this. Um, welcome to Total SF in exile the podcast and thank you for putting up with me in general my guest today is judd winnick i'm peter hartlob and this is total sf thank you very much welcome to total sf judd winnick um thrilled to have you here I feel like I kind of know you already. I, I'm betting you get this a lot from people coming up on the street and just walking up and talking to you as if you're like a good friend of theirs. We get that a lot. Both my wife, Pam, and I who were cast members of the real world uh, 26 years ago. So we do, we do, we do get that. We have gotten that. I'll put it another way. We've gotten it so often for so long. It's beyond fine. It's just something we've, you know, it's, it's normal to us. It's no big deal. Uh, 99% of the people who come up to us are really awesome. I mean, and I'm not being Pollyanna about it. Really, people are really cool. Um, You know, and it's easy for us at, you know, dinner parties or cocktail parties when we used to go to those, you know. So how'd you guys meet? We were on reality (laughs) TV 26 years ago. So we get that a lot and it's no problem. First of all, 26 years, I think we're the same age or I might be a year or two older. Um, 26 years, wow. Yeah, time flies. There's no question there. Just no, no, no. Believe me, it's weird. Yeah. I uh, I was doing the math with uh, with my mom and dad last week or so, and my my father was my age now when I went on the show. Yeah. So when he when he and my mom drove me to the airport to fly to San Francisco to do the show, he was this age, which kind of like like holy crap, like that that was a hard uh-huh. one for me. Um, it's like yeah, okay, all right, yeah. Not driving my kids to the airport to go on reality TV anytime soon, though. That's not going to happen. <laughs> and I, I want to ask you, too, and you've, you've sure. embraced it. Um, one thing that we're going to talk about a little bit is the 20th anniversary of Pedro and Me is coming up. I have the original that I bought here. Oh. I just reread it. And uh, I'm wondering now, like, are people starting to recognize you for other things, too? You've done a lot. You've had a <laughs> career. You know, you started a television show. You've done mm-hmm. a lot of writing. And then Hilo now is... Um, uh, working on uh, your sixth book? Yeah, just uh, seventh. Seventh yeah. slash eighth. Uh, the the uh, Hilo book six came out in this past February. Uh, I just wrapped up the seventh one. We're just finishing uh-huh. up the last couple of things before it goes off to print. And uh, I'm currently writing, I mean, like, well, my studio's here, so right over there. I'm working uh-huh. on book, I'm working on book over number eight, right <laughs> over there. Uh, yeah. So it's all good. But yeah, I've um, if I had to nail it down, I've kind of I've kind of worn three hats, three different quadrants that people might know me from. Uh-huh. So there's a whole generation who know me and my wife Pam from the from MTV's Real World third season that that was here in San Francisco back in 1994. Um, there's a whole swath of people who know me from writing uh, superhero comics for 10 12 years mostly for dc comics that's a whole nother group and now there's this whole other group of kids uh you know hilo has been going since 2015 uh and uh i'm knocking wood uh uh doing very well so no complaints there so um so a lot of times i'll be talking to moms dads and kiddos who know me for for these three things Mm -hmm. uh in one household it's a little weird but i really have nothing to compare it to this is, yeah. <laughs> this, this, this is my life. And it's, it's, and it's not bad. It's a good deal. San Francisco, I wanted to ask you, when you came for the real world, was that the very first time you had been to San Francisco? Yes. I like to uh, equate it to, for uh, the folks who know uh, Armisen Moffin's uh, Tales of the City, um, the, the opening line of it is that... Uh, 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 Marianne Singleton was 22 years old when she first saw San Francisco. Uh, I was 24 years old the first time I saw San Francisco. Uh, and when I read that opening line of, of Tales of the City, I like, like, holy crap, that was the same thing for me. That was all, all wild. Yeah, and uh, I actually moved 
we began filming the show and I set foot in San Francisco for the very first time on my 24th birthday. Uh-huh. I, I turned 24 the day I got here. It was the first time I saw the city, yeah. It's such an unconventional way to get to know the city, and, and I guess that's my question. <laughs> yeah. Like, did you feel like while you were doing that, you know, you, you land on a plane, you've got all these cameras around you, you've got all these pressures, um, new relationships. Um, did you feel like you got to know the city then, or did you kind of get it to know it in a different way after that? I'm wondering if you fell for the city while all that was going on, or, or whether you, you got a chance to do that later. I would say um, all of the above. I, uh, I mean, I yeah, I moved here in the weirdest circumstances. We're filming a television show, and this is you know by far like you know, as you film it, without getting into it too much, there is this whole feeling of like even you're all you are always aware when you're being filmed. So there's mm-hmm. this constant sense of uh, of excitement, danger, and this overriding fact like oh my god, this is so cool, it's gonna be on TV. What's going on? I'm here in the city for the first time. So all the kind of fear as well as the excitement of being someplace new was kind of just jumbled into it. Mm -hmm. And I did get to know the city a lot in those first six months while I was, you know, I'm living in a really, really nice house, not paying rent, but at the same time, kind of broke. Uh, I, I I was really strapped while I was doing the show. They don't pay you while you're doing the show, but free rent, not paying utilities, so I just pretty much had to get by on like food, gas, and mad money. That's all I had to do while I was here. So it was a little bit of the, the struggling artist thing going on while I'm, you know, on this multi-million dollar television show. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's, it, it gave me kind of a, I will say, sort of a rose-colored glasses view of the city. Yeah. But I never left. I mean, this was it. You know, I, I, you know, I, I showed up here when I was 24 years old, and uh, we've never left. Uh, this is home. It always will be. You know, I have to start by apologizing. I was an examiner employee just for a brief time in the late 90s, and I, I read in Pedro and me that you were paid $35 for your uh, comic strip that they ran. Yeah. Yeah, it's 35 bucks that, a week. That's so examiner. Um, <laughs> It's actually, the truth is, that's about the going rate for a weekly comic strip. That's okay. why you have to be in, if you're in 3,000 papers, yeah. you know, that's 3,000 papers times, you know, 30 to 35 bucks a day. If you have a daily strip, that's, that's a great living. That's terrific. Mm-hmm. So um, that's actually what it goes for, you know. And if you do a weekly, you've got to be in a lot of papers to sort of support yourself, um, you know, several thousand. It's about the going rate. I will say, on the, for, for those who watch the show, they made a very, very big deal about me landing a, com- a weekly comic strip in The Examiner. Uh-huh. It sort of swept under the rug that I was getting 35 bucks a week. So it yeah. wasn't sort of like, it's coming in like the loaves and the fishes here. Let's buy- I'm going to buy a Cadillac for Red and All the Boys. Like, no, that's, you know, yeah. you know a- after supplies and time I put into it, it's pretty much nothing. But, you know, made for great TV. No one's complaining yeah. there. Well, I, I, I got to ask, too. I mean, it seems like sure. L.A. and New York would be logical places to go, um, you know, because you, you worked, you started a TV show. And, and it just it seems mm-hmm. like from a business standpoint, that would have been the decision. And yet you stayed in San Francisco. So that makes me think you must have loved it. And yeah, kind of what kept you here and what do you what do you love about it? What keeps you in San Francisco? This is uh this is the biggest, tiniest city in the world. We'll start with that. Uh, as you know, like San Francisco is not a big place. We've got less than a million people in the city proper, uh, but it has all the form and function and style and dynamics of a, of a major city, because it mm-hmm. is. But it's so unbelievably manageable. And on top of that, it's so damn beautiful here. It just really is. I mean, we, we forget so many things about how great San Francisco is, except when you leave. You leave and go someplace else, and it's like, yeah, this, this, is a, this, this is really ugly. This place is, <laughs> wow. You guys live in a really, really ugly city. Wow. <laughs> I mean, for us, it's, you know, it, it is just, it, there, there's so much to see and do. And if you are someplace where it's a particularly crappy place to see or do, just, just go six blocks over and you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. So much of my career the last few years has been 
trying to find assignments that will get me essentially traveling randomly. Right. Because I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, just in the last year, even with the pandemic, where I've been in San Francisco and just, oh my God, I've never been here. And never it's been here. stunning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you know, I should have had my wedding here, you know, in the middle of uh, Ingleside with that view of Sutro Tower or whatever it is. No, and isn't that true for the city? It's, it's I mean, it's yeah. the thing that is, it probably annoys people when we talk about it. It's like, no, it's not that big a place, but constantly discovering things like, oh, new things are opening. Like, no, I mean things that apparently have been here for 35 years and I didn't even realize, like, did you know this was here? Like, no. Yeah. And then we don't talk about it for at least three or four years to anybody if we can help it. It's like, I found this awesome place that's been here forever that apparently no one knows about. Tell yeah. no one. <laughs> it'll break big and it'll ruin it we can't have that yeah yeah well very cool um i i held it up before i'm gonna do it again uh i've got my original pedro and me and um, thank you sir i wanted to ask you like if that's continuing for you if that's something do you still get calls to talk at schools is the book still being used in schools because i reread it and it actually hit me even harder well, it was, it was born out of uh, Pam and I were on The Real World, and my, my roommate and our housemate was Pedro Zamora, 22-year-old AIDS educator and activist, uh, back in 1994, uh, before uh, combination drug therapy and also before, um, well, before most people in America actually knew someone who was living with AIDS. Um, it was at a time when uh, if you were living with HIV-AIDS, it was just good or bad luck if you were going to live or not and how long we just didn't know and also that was the perception um it was still viewed as a plague and among the community who didn't know much about it meaning outside of the uh, gay and lesbian community outside of the aids and hiv community people didn't know much Pedro was the first person to come on television and actually sort of blow it open i don't want to understate it uh when i say that uh, he literally did change the world uh and then after the show, uh, Pedro passed away literally the night after the last episode aired. Um, Pam and I uh, started lecturing, uh, going around the country and talking about Pedro. Um, sometimes together, sometimes apart. Go to middle schools, high schools, colleges, and, and basically give hour and change lecture about AIDS and HIV and about what it was like to know Pedro and to love him and to lose him. That got to be hard after a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, Again and again, reliving the experience of knowing him and losing him got to be hard. Um, so in very, very long story short, in there I got the idea of maybe doing it as a graphic novel, which I'd never done before. Um, I'd always done comic strips. Uh, so I thought I could give it a try this way. And it took about two and a half years of doing it and doing it over again, meaning the book, writing it and rewriting it and redrawing it and redrawing it till I, till I figured out, like, oh, it's a graphic novel. That's what it will be. Um, and, uh, got very lucky. Henry Holt, uh, who's a terrific publisher, put it out. Um, and it's been in print ever since. Uh, I haven't, and Pam, we haven't done a lot of, uh, feet on the ground AIDS education where we're going to go visit schools the way we used to specifically Mm -hmm. because that's, that's why we did the book. Um, I wanted to have a record of it that, you know, instead of having to go someplace like here it is, here's the story. And uh, what's been amazing is that uh, young people who weren't even born when the show was on have found the book and found Pedro's story. And uh, they'll find the book, and then they'll seek out the real world itself, and then, then they'll learn. Um, so that has been amazing. It, it, it did what we were hoping it would do, which is just to carry, carry on Pedro's story. I. Three things struck me rereading it, and I recommend people seek it out, especially if you watched The Real World, and that's sort of your remembrance of of that time and of Pedro, because, one, you're very honest about yourself, um, about, about, you know, the fears that you had. Um, Two, you don't hash out, you know, little problems you had with people in the house. There's not that much about... The real world, except your feelings about it, which I found even more interesting than if you had hashed out some old argument with someone. And three, and this is the most important, so much of it is in his words. And there's one part where you and Pam um, go to a school to watch him give a presentation, and you as the graphic novelist essentially turn it over to him. And for Mm -hmm. pages 
put this, uh, this, 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 um, you know, what he was saying to the kids to educate them and his story in his words. And it's, it's like, um, that holds up today. And I thought that was just such a smart decision that, you know, it feels like he's in this book too. So I, I, I watched the show and remember it, but rereading it, that just really struck me and it brought it back. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's, that, uh, that's the entire mission of, of it. Um, I mean, uh, it's, uh, uh, it is, which I tried to make it much about his story as possible. I think it was maybe, uh, four years back about, uh, I was very lucky UCLA, uh, decided to put it on its summer reading list. So they sent it out to, I don't know. So it went out to, uh, I don't know if the entire student body, but about 10,000 kids, 18 year olds, Mm -hmm. Um, got the book, and then they invited me to come speak, and uh, which was amazing. So I was there about the first week of school, and they'd read it over the summer, uh, and I was addressing like like an auditorium of like five thousand, uh, and it was amazing. And it only hit me as I st- as I stepped up there, as I had mentioned that doing the math, like oh wow, none of you were born when I did the real world, <laughs> not a single one of you. And uh, at the time, they I mean they all told me the same story, which is they they read the, they read the book. And they went online and found the show. At the time, it was running on MTV, and they all read it. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm going to get through this without crying. And if I'm gesturing and talking loudly, it's because I do not want to get upset while I talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the most remarkable part of that entire experience is speaking at UCLA and having it become that the book is part of the summer reading is that um, dozens, uh, about double digits, I would say, almost like 20, maybe a little more, uh, afterwards, we did a book signing, which went on forever because it was like 5,000 kids. Um, so it was great. It was great. It was amazing. Yeah. Everyone should have this experience. But dozens of 18-year-olds came up to me and told me, because they read the book and because they watched Pedro, they they came out to their parents. Oh. Um, yeah, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to talk quickly and no, I'll just, I'll really, I'm going to lose it. Um, a number of them had a great experience and a number of them had a horrible experience where they were saying that I, I told them three weeks ago and we haven't spoken since. And uh, I had to leave. I, I actually had to contact school and they had to let me come here early because my parents threw me out of the house. Things like that. Yeah. You know, on the worst side of it to the, the best side of it, which is, you know, a couple of young men and women who, who their parents said, like, we know. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you've known? It's like, we've always known that you were gay. Yeah. Always. It's like, well, why didn't you say, like, we're waiting for you to tell us. We didn't know if you knew. We have no idea. Um, and uh, that was a remarkable experience. Because the idea that he had been gone um, at that point for over 20 years, but he was still reaching young people, young, young gay men and women, who through him found the courage to come out to their parents, which for anybody in the community knows is just about the hardest thing when you finally have to tell your family. Um, he did that for them and he'd been gone for 20 years and it was a remarkable, remarkable gift that he still, he still does. He still, he still provides inspiration and gives courage to so many people in so many ways. We'll be right back after this short break. Support for this podcast comes from AT&T. All right. So to stay connected, AT&T business has the only wireless plan your teams need. With mobile hotspot data up to 100 gigabytes, they can easily use their phones to connect tablets and laptops to the internet from really virtually wherever work takes them, giving them the power to boost productivity even on the go. Upgrade to AT&T Business and get our best plan with nationwide 5G and 100 gigabytes in mobile hotspot data. Visit att.com slash business elite. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I I wanted to ask you also just about you mentioned those three stages and and the third stage um was kind of i i found it unexpected because i had gotten used to you as a writer and then you made the decision to um start a series for uh for children what 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 made you want to do that yes i mean going from writing mainstream superhero comics for about 12 years and then uh, going over to, uh, so now, now I do the Hilo series, which I write and draw myself. Um, it was, it was kind of about coming full circle. There was a lot of things that went into it. It wasn't, it wasn't overnight. There was like an overnight moment 
which I'll, I'll get into, but it was somewhat gradual. I, I started out doing comic strips. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I grew up wanting to do. I eventually got to do a comic strip, um, which then led me to start doing... I did this graphic novel about Pedro, which is the first time I did that. I owe him that too. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever would have done this kind of storytelling or even thought about writing comic books if, if I didn't tell Pedro's story first. I owe him for that. Um, and after Pedro and Me, which was incredibly emotional to do, I, I wanted to do something really infantile and stupid and fun. <laughs> uh, so I did this. Uh, my own series was called The Adventures of Barry Ween, Boy Genius, mm-hmm. which is basically about a 10-year-old boy genius who blows things up and, and curses a lot. Um, and uh, I really love doing it. I just, I found like, no, no, this is how I like telling stories. I love doing it. I love being this profane. And that, that and Pedro Army led to um, my buddy Bob Shrek, who is an editor at and founder of Oni, Oni Press. When he went to DC Comics, he offered me a job to write superhero comics right around 2000, actually around when, before Pedro Army came out. Um, and that was incredible. It was great. I mean, I was a huge comic book fan as a kid. I mean, that's, I mean, I didn't read prose books until for pleasure, maybe, I don't know, maybe uh, my senior year of high school or college. I don't, it was always comic books, superhero yeah. comics. And, uh, and I loved it and, uh, and uh, wrote probably every character I ever wanted to. Um, but around a time I was getting a little bit, burned down is in the world, never got any near that. But um, I had I'd been writing superhero comics. I then I did an animated series for Cartoon Network. And then I was noticing there was like a five-year period where I hadn't drawn anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was sort of noticing, as well as my wife was noticing, that I was getting deeply unhappy about a lot of different stuff. Uh, my son, we had a baby. My son's 15 now, and he's like two, three, four years old. And, uh, and it was, a, it was a slow grind of like, I'm, I'm very unhappy with what I'm doing. And I thought maybe I should start doing something where I write and draw again. And then jump ahead to when my son was around seven. Mm-hmm. I'm still writing for DC. My son was seven and he's learning to love superheroes. Knows I wrote Batman and said, daddy, can I read some of your Batman comics that you wrote? And I had to tell him, no, you may not read my Batman comics because they're kind of for older kids and grownups. You're seven. They're a little bit intense. So we poked around and uh, there wasn't a lot for him to read as far as like, you know, all ages superhero comics. So I gave him Bone, Jeff Smith's Bone. Oh, good choice. And he, yeah, and he just lost his damn mind. He just yeah. loved it. Now, I know Jeff. I know Jeff Smith. Jeff's a buddy of mine. And I gave him a heads up that my son just went crazy on nuts bananas for bone. And then Jeff said, that's awesome. I'm going to send you some stuff. So he sent us a gigantic box of bone merch. Uh-huh. Uh, and, like, I mean everything. You know, action figures, T-shirts, hats, posters, out-of-date calendars, stuffed animals. And my son became a bone super fan. Like, the bone stuff is just everywhere. Uh-huh. So he's reading the books. He's got the merch. And it was around this time that I kind of got jealous. <laughs> I just, I'm watching him just dig in and love Bone so much that I thought, you know, I should do something. I should do a story that he likes as much as this. I know I can. And that's when I started digging in and that's, that's when I started working on Hilo. And I actually sat down for over a year and change and just did it on spec. Uh-huh. I just did a book. I, I, I wrote and drew in pencil an entire 200-page graphic novel not knowing what would happen with it. Um, but with that, uh, I gave it to my, my agent to then, she dug it, she sent it out, and this small independent publisher, Random House, which is a comer, some of you may have heard of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think Random House is quoted as that they're the largest publisher of books in the English language. So Random House, uh, thank you the gods uh, was interested in Hilo. Uh, and, and that's how it kind of happened. So it was born, Hilo was born out of spite and jealousy uh, <laughs> and the need to win back my son's love. The aim of the series is for it to feel kind of like a Pixar movie in the sense that it's all ages, yeah. that as a parent and as you know a comic book guy, um, I wanted to tell like a superhero story, an action adventure story that moms and dads when they read it with their kids to their kids for their kids whatever 
they didn't want to like the second reading like oh god i i said do not want to read this again yeah please god you know like no more of the fluffy bunny cutesy <laughs> this i actually just want to do something like you know something that felt like you know felt all ages like legit all ages so yeah. you know that's that's funny for everybody you know geared towards the kids but more than palatable for the grown-ups along with like theme and story and like it should be fun uh but also um yeah the 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 DJ limb of it all. So, so our, our, our lead character kind of, even though it's Hilo, mm -hmm. it, it's also in as much about DJ and Gina and what they're doing and how they're going through it. Uh, DJ is kind of our entry to the book. He's our human being who, yeah, I think kids, I was shocked how much kids actually responded to the idea of not a sad sack kid, not a kid like my life's terrible. I'm getting bullied. Everything's lousy. I hate my parents or I have no friends or whatnot. Just a kid who feels ordinary mm -hmm. was way more universal than I, than I realized. So many kids just have this sense about themselves that they don't feel special. I, I think too, and it was certainly my experience that a lot of kids, I felt ordinary. I had a high achieving sister who was a great athlete and, mm -hmm. and, I found comfort in comic book shops and independent bookstores, but comic book shops. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if you have like a, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about some San Francisco um, stores, but I'm wondering if you have like a comic book shop or a bookstore origin story where <laughs> you first kind of like a light got turned on for you. Was there a place that you went um, or, or a place where you kind of found yourself? I did find... This is pre-internet, so when you went to comic stores, as you know, this is the experience a lot of us of this age have. Yeah. You read your comics alone, but when you went to the comic store, when we shifted from your mom or dad buying you comics from the spinner rack at 7-Eleven or whatever it is, to when comic stores became a thing that you'd walk into, which were, for the most part, not wonderful places. They had the feeling of, for those who don't know, like a used record store, but even less hygiene sometimes, <laughs> yeah. and even like more attitude. No um, air conditioning. I think there was oh, like a rule that yeah, there was they're, no they're air conditioning. Hot. All yeah. the all the the racks of back issues and like they're not pretty gorgeous places. But you go in there, and there is something a little bit magical about the fact that it's all these superhero comics. And you could go to somebody in the store and say, "Hey, so I wanted to read more of you know X Men that came well." I, the, the John Byrne, Chris Claremont X-Men run. It's like, well, those are hard to find. They're kind of expensive. It's like, if you don't care, I can get you some crappy ones, which have been like, like I'm missing the cover and beat up so you at least read them. Or it's like, you know, there's a, there's a beat up trade of the, the, the Dark Phoenix saga. Have you read all that? Like, I think I have. Like, hang on, let me go find it for you. And suddenly, there's this adult or this, you know, 17-year-old who's helping you out to find this stuff. Like, I didn't do this in libraries. I didn't, I actually, I wasn't a library kid. But I was a comic store kid who then went and like found back issues and found stories that I thought were important. And suddenly that, I found him having conversations about comics, arguments, not bad arguments, but, you know, we're having these, these debates which turn toxic now. Um, it was the first time that I actually found, in hindsight, that I was really talking about storytelling, mm -hmm. you know, in the nerdiest way, why I didn't really love these superhero heroes, these Superman stories. Um, I thought they were kind of nerdy or whatever. Like, I think Marvel was, I, I didn't put words to it. I thought Marvel was cooler and, you know, and like, you know, aren't the what ifs great, you know? And like, you know, I remember talking to some, a couple of dudes about like, I thought what if was awesome, you know, yeah. like it was like, what a great idea, taking stories that we know and then twisting them, you know? And then, then in that they said, yeah, they're kind of like Twilight Zones. It's like, yeah, they're all like Twilight Zones. <laughs> I thought that too. I thought that in my head. And then you're expressing it here, quasi-adult human. So um, that happened to me as like, as a 14-year-old a, a and a 15-year-old into a teenager. Um, but uh, I will say I started reading, I mean, uh, I was like 15, 16 years old when Dark Knight Returns came out. Uh -huh. You know, when comics sort of changed. Yeah, yeah. You know, when they, you know, Watchmen, it's a dark night to Sandman when they became literature. Um, I got to live through that. And uh, so, again, being a kid who didn't talk to anybody about any of this stuff and just having these conversations in comic stores 
and then having that the tone and tenor of it changed sort of unaware you know i was just reading the comics you didn't think about it you just lived it um, well, I, I remember like so i would spinning racks you know there were two places yeah. near me where i could walk to where i could get the new editions but mm-hmm. Uh, when I first went to a comic book store, described exactly uh, your comic book <laughs> store in Long Island and mine in San Carlos or wherever it was, yeah. were exactly the same. What I the couple things I learned were I could fill in the gaps. So if I yes. was like grounded or didn't have money, there were I was like, oh my god, I can get those back editions of X Men. And I don't think kids really understand that now because they just have access to everything. But back then, it was yeah. like if you missed your favorite TV show, maybe you might get it in reruns, but you missed it. It's gone. Well, I would go to a comic book store and fill in those gaps. And what that started to do is I started filling in the gaps and getting the storylines and then noticing who the artists were and who was writing my favorite storylines. And that's when the comic book guy who didn't have a lot of social skills, but he had enough to tell me, oh yeah, that guy wrote this one too. And that to me, like, you know, in, in terms of what I like, in, in terms of art, you know, that, that was a huge, huge breakthrough. Just knowing that, oh, these are storytellers. These are artists that are collaborating. Yeah. And that's kind of when I fell in love with it, you know, and, and, uh, and it, it uh, to this day, I mean, I, that's my process. I'm, I'm filling in gaps. The times that I missed, <laughs> the times that I was in college and didn't read comic books, I'm going back, you know, and, and my comic book stores now, I mean, I have like four of them that are in regular mm-hmm. rotation that I love for different reasons. And I just love going there. You know, I mean, um, they're, they're much more comfortable places, I think, than when I was a kid. And you can pick one that fits your personality. You know, certainly in the Bay Area, there are a lot of great ones. I, I just love how you know, if if you want a certain vibe, you can go to a certain store. Um, if I want books, I go to Comics Experience on Divisadero. Yep. I mean, they have a really good supply there. I love Isotope just to discover new things because I know the guy who owns it is going to have a conversation with me and turn me on to something else. I'll drive out those, to... F- those, those, by the way, those are my two stores. Well, we'll, okay. we'll get... I, I know. Just, we'll, when we'll you, mentioned, you mentioned them on the previous podcast, it's like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I love them. I, I'll drive out to Flying Colors Comics just because uh-huh. it's, you know, Joe Fields, you know, he started WonderCon with a couple other people. I mean, and he yep. he's someone who um, I, I just think, you know, really has defined the retail experience. I'll go to Atlantis Fantasy World in Santa Cruz for kind of a throwback experience. But, you know, and it's, I, that has been the best for the longest time. Yeah, uh, my, my my favorite story about uh, about Joe Ferrar, who's the owner of the store, um, when uh, he uh, he invited a bunch of us out to do a signing. Um, me, Scott Morse, cartoonist who uh, works over at Pixar, uh, Jim Mafood, um, another independent guy. So these are the guys I came up with in independent comics. We went and did a signing there. Uh, I was writing for DC Comics as well at the time, and Joe said, "Judd, you work for DC. I love you." Can you do me this big favor? Can you ask anybody who works there to make a Batman poster? And what I mean is by a Batman poster, a poster with just Batman on it. Not Batman and whatever monster of the week he's fighting or Batman in the special, you know, hybrid underwater armor. I want Batman. He can be on top of a building. Anything. I'd sell 10 of those a week. No problem. Every week I get moms and dads coming in here. Their kid likes Batman. It's like, can I get a Batman poster? Like, Right here, it's like, why does he look different? Like, well, he's a vampire. He's a vampire, so it's a special black and white vampire Batman. No, no, I just want Batman. Like, yeah, I don't have that. Yeah. Um, and this is a while ago. This is this is this is twenty years ago. Uh, they've both DC has gotten smarter with that and for that. Uh, but at the time, you know, it was hard. You know, it was hard to get kids in the stores. But that's my that's my favorite story about Atlantis Fantasy World, which is still one of the best stores in the country. It's the best. Uh, you you mentioned Comics Experience and Isotope are two of your two of your faves. Yeah, uh, Comics Experience. I I lived I uh, in the year uh, mid nineties. I was living in the hate, uh-huh. and I and I just wandered the hell in there. I mean, it was I just I mean, it was just one. I mean, looking back, like how nuts was that? That I happened to wander into. In, in my opinion, I've been around one of the best comic book stores in the country. Was was like ten minutes away from my apartment. Um, and I just, I think I just looked it up. Um, and I 
went on in there and was like, oh, that's it. and I, I probably talked to Brian, maybe the first, Brian Hibbs, who's mm-hmm. the uh, owner and operator of Comics Experience. Since he was like I, 18 or 19, he started it when he, he's our age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, he's our age. And he started when he was a kid. years he's been doing it, yeah. Yes, and um, it was an extraordinary story. It's the perfect example of a story that started out as a, and I don't think Brian would take offense to it. It started out as an old school comic book store. Racks and racks of back issues, you know, comics up on the wall. Uh, but it had a better vibe. Uh, it is, it is, the, it is one of the best stores in the country uh, because of the deep knowledge. And also, Brian was one of the first people I think to say, like, yeah, I think kids like comics, and we're going to yeah. make sure that this is a section for kids. And yeah. I think, like, my readers who are coming in here at, at 16 years old are now in their 20s, and some pop in 30, and they're walking in here with kids. Let's. Let's tidy up the joint a little bit. Let's, let's make tidy this up the joint, music. and let's have a book club for kids. I mean, he, that was, he started yeah. that. I think. I think that was three years ago, maybe longer. Yeah. Uh, that was a, that was a long, just a a, a brilliant piece of. Uh, he's just an excellent businessman. With that right. one, it's like, yeah, I'm gonna start a a graphic novel club for grownups, graphic novel club for kids, and Isotope. <laughs> just <laughs> James is the greatest. I I, yeah. I don't even recall when I wandered into James's. Uh, store. I think I've read about it online. Let's let's describe and James. He's got this massive pile of gorgeous hair. Always uh, he wears the suit. suit. He has an old school man out of time quality. His favorite yeah. character is Doctor Strange. If you go to the store, there is a perfect Doctor Strange costume within eyeshot. Uh, many, many pictures of James wearing the Doctor yeah. Strange outfit. Hence the stash. The stash is a Doctor Strange mustache. Um, and uh, there is no one who will curate comics better for you than that. Um, he, um, I, again, my son is 15 and he will always, he always chats him up. Like, what do you like? What are you reading? And it's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. Let me, I'm gonna get you something. Go get him this. You know, it's like, you know, okay, this is, this is, this is Hulk. This is old. Like, so a lot of panels, a lot of verbiage here and there, but I think you're going to like it as a quality to it. So this old Hulk trade and like whatever it is. So, they're great. They're fun. They're always a blast to be in, you yeah. know. I, and I, I love. I've, I've written a lot of stories about comics over the year in comic book shops, and I love how like they've been written off so many times. You know, oh, <laughs> yeah. this is going to kill them. Oh, TV's going to kill them. The comic book movies are going to kill them. Digital people are going to read comics on their iPad, and every time it's just made them adapt a little more. Yeah, be a little bit smarter and have a better experience for the people who come in. I will say though now, like I'm worried about independent bookstores and comic book shops. Um, certainly Joe Field is someone who, you know, I, I read his tweets and stuff and I'm like, yeah. this is serious. And, and, and I'm wondering, you know, if you've been thinking about that and, and, uh, and, and thinking about with this pandemic. What's you know, remarkable is we've been talking for almost an hour and we've only touched the pandemic just now. Yeah. Which we should we should get a prize. <laughs> yes. We should give a, we should get a big attaboy for doing that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that alone that we anyone who's been listening, we managed to to, to to stay away not stay away from it. Happily just talk about other stuff for a little while. We should get a prize. Yeah. Um but in talking about comic stores, independent bookstores and the pandemic, um I'll say this. One, we are we are still in the car during this car wreck. Uh, we are living through a car wreck right now. The car got hit and we are still spinning. It has not stopped. It's just it should have slowed down a couple of months ago, but it hasn't. We're still in the middle of it. Um, from you know, numbers keep increasing. We haven't got a good handle on it. Um, we're not getting leadership from above, like everything. We're yeah. still in the car wreck. So we don't know exactly how this is all going to shake out. But I will say <coughs> that um, comics, Batman's been around for 80 years. You know, <laughs> that is something. Um, and it's, it's one of the few characters, I mean, superhero comics in general. These characters have remained in print for decades through world wars, through all kinds of economic strife, through changes in medium and media that you that you know from you know from from radio to television to motion pictures to the goddamn internet to that two year that that actually turned out to be like a one year period where we thought forget paper everyone everyone's going to read everything on their tablets and it turns out comic books they like comic books and reading them in paper um, comics uh, 
yeah, the comic stores and bookstores are going to take a hit for the pandemic, but at some point it's going to end. It will. This is not going to be the rest of our lives. And human beings will begin to start walking back into stores. Um, it'll happen. Now, a number of comic stores and bookstores will probably close. More, more comic stores. Comic stores will have a harder time, I think, than bookstores. Yeah. Right now, people are just doing destination shopping. Uh, I implore people uh, to... Uh, I, I love Amazon. Amazon supports my work. Yeah. Uh, and, but they will be fine. Uh, if you can take the extra few minutes to reach out to your independent bookstore and order books through there, they will benefit in a much greater way than Amazon or even a barnesandnoble.com or anything online. And, and they, um, can do, they can do what Amazon can do. And that's what I'm hoping. Sure. Yeah. I'm hoping that people are realizing that. And, and I didn't fully realize it. I would go to bookstores and buy books. And it wasn't until, it was before the pandemic, but it wasn't until less than a year ago that I had a Twitter conversation with a couple of author friends and told them, hey, I want to support your pre-sale, but... And they said not enough independent bookstores are doing it, but most independent bookstores will will pre-order for you. You can do it there. Yeah. So I started doing that. What I'm noticing is that the 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 bookstores and the comic book shops are are balling up their fists and saying, "Okay, I'm not ready to go down. I'm not. I'm, right. I've got a little fight left in me." And they're getting more organized about it, and they're promoting the fact better that. You don't have to have that split where, oh, I walk into bookstores and browse, but I go on Amazon for the stuff that I know I want. You can do the Amazon stuff at bookstores, too. And I'm I'm hoping coming out of this, people not only are just like hardwired to like patronize their independent businesses, but know that these businesses are evolving as this is going on and are going to be able to do a lot of the things that you could do online. I think... Yeah, and hope the exact same thing that long term, once both people once you once you buy a book or five from an independent bookstore right now from home, and you see they're like, oh, they can mail it to me, or hell, what a great excuse just to get out, mask up, go outside, (laughs) go to the bookstore, walk up, they'll do the curbside for you. I mean, everyone's doing that. A couple bookstores are actually open and allow you come and walk around a bit here and there, but. it is my hope that people will realize, yeah, and they can. Uh, and bookstores, like you said, are getting way more adept at the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, we will. I mean, a lot of us authors for a long time have done a thing where, hey, can I get the book personalized? Like, yeah, here's my local bookstore. It's called Folio Books. Um, this is the one I go through. Call them. Order the book. I will come down there and sign it and personalize it for you, and they'll mail it to you. For a lot of money, like, no, same amount as Amazon, a couple of bucks. You know, and on top of that, you have a personalized book that I will draw in. It's got your kid's name in it. So, you know, just do that. And, um, you know, we've been doing that for years. And I'm not the only author who does that. It's very easy. I think people are getting better at it. Um, It'll be rough for a while. I hope, again, particularly the comic stores, that uh, we survive. You got to keep patronizing your comic stores. You got to, you know, order your stuff there. Um, But again, in a couple of months. Yeah. As an industry. They'll be fine. They always have been. They'll, they'll survive. Well, good message. Um, uh, I, I'm looking at the time and realizing you're one of these people that just the time flies, but <laughs> I'm sure you have commitments too. I did want to ask about Pam sure. and just how she's doing. And, and uh, you know, obviously we're in a pandemic and she's a yeah. doctor and and, yeah. uh, and I'm sure people are thinking about her and, and would want to know and want me to ask. So well, she the, doing for well? For those playing at home... Um, who might not have caught this already. So uh, Pam and I, we met on The Real World 26 years ago when she was a medical student. Uh, she is now a uh, doctor of internal medicine at, at uh, University of California, San Francisco, uh, as well as a full professor there. Um, she does, uh, the bulk of her work she does, uh, she fights big tobacco. Mm-hmm. She works at the uh, uh, tobacco center at UCSF. Uh, she's one of the heads. She's actually the interim head of the uh, director of the center right now. So she does a lot of tobacco research. Uh, everything you've ever heard about people uh, is, well, when we first heard of e-cigarettes, even before they called it vaping, yeah. and they said, this is better than cigarettes and better for you and much healthier. Uh, Pam was just among the first people, one of the first scientists to say, like, uh-huh, has anyone done any research on this at all before you say this is healthy? Like, no. It's like, okay, you can't just tell people this is healthy. So she's been fighting vaping and e-cigarettes and, and whatnot for 
years and years now, among mm-hmm. other things. But she's also a feet-on-the-ground doctor who sees patients. Um, and she is busy. So she is both seeing patients up close and personal uh, and then uh, having to uh, come home and, uh, and stay good and clean to make sure her family doesn't get anything, but also seeing patients via Zoom uh, uh, when she can. Yeah. So she's really, really busy. Uh, and we are, as, as always, very, very proud of her. Uh, but she's doing a lot. I'd say um, it's not so much silver lining, but as a city, we've been very lucky. Uh, for the locals who are listening to this, no. As a city, um, our mayor got ahead of this. Mayor, mayor uh, uh, London Bree got ahead of this, uh, and we were sheltering in place long before everybody else. So our numbers are, uh, are not bad. Mm-hmm. Um, our hospitals are not full to capacity. We're doing okay. And I've knocked wood a bunch of times, but uh, we'll knock wood again. So she's doing good. She's kicking ass. Uh, it's been 26 years, and she pretty much looks exactly the same as when she was on The Real World. <laughs> Uh, I have not, so I so try to stay we, in Jed. shape. So do we. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just try to stay grateful. Yeah. Well, it's great speaking with you. I'm really glad you guys stayed in San Francisco. I think I would have followed your career anyway, but uh, it's kind of nice just knowing you're local and uh, and really great to talk to you. Uh, Thank you, sir. Likewise. Yeah. yeah, this is uh, this is one of those podcasts where it just feels like I barely feel like we were, were recording anything. Uh, <laughs> it this this was a really nice chat. Awesome. Uh, yeah, awesome. and a non well, non COVID chat. <laughs> yeah, we'll get you to the Chronicle in our archive, and you can geek out. We've got a lot of uh, cool old photos there back when the world's normal again. But uh, yeah, Fantastic. thanks again for coming on. My pleasure, sir. Thank you. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Judd Winnick, and thank you to Kelly Hartlob. Total SF is a production of the Chronicle. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community and Cable Car Bell Ringing by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF and the newsroom that creates it by treating yourself to a digital Chronicle edition at sfchronicle.com pod. <laughs>